Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The town of Myers, California, is nestled along Highway 50 in the Sierra Nevada, a short drive past that breathtaking view of the lake from Echo Summit right before you hit South Lake Tahoe. Although many of the homes in this community are rental properties, hundreds call it home year-round. They've become accustomed to both the threat of wildfires and shoveling themselves out of epic snowstorms. But this winter, the snowfall in the central Sierra is nearing records, leaving residents in Myers and other communities in the high country buried in a bewildering amount of snow. One of the residents of this town is Susie Coker, a forest advisor for the University of California's Cooperative Extension in South Lake Tahoe. When Susie and her family haven't been shoveling snow at their home, she's been chronicling the incredible amount of snowfall amounts on her Twitter page over the last couple weeks. Susie joins us now from her home in Myers to share really a front row seat at how these powerful storms have been impacting daily life for her community. Susie, welcome back to Insight. Thanks, Vicki. I'm glad to be here. You've joined us in the past for wildfires, and now we're here for some pretty epic snowstorms. You know, you were really the buzz of of our newsroom, our little Insight team. We've been following you on Twitter. Uh, the videos are just remarkable, and you and your family are living through it, as well as your neighbors. How are you holding up? Um, I would say with a combination of awe and dread at the same time, you know, more snow is forecast. It's snowing right now. I mean, obviously, it's awe-inspiring to see this much snow, to have this much snow. Um, Skiing's been amazing, you know, Um, but the dread part is uh, how much work it is to shovel yourself out and keep everything working in an environment like that. So some days awe, some days dread. (laughs) That is completely understandable. Given that you and your family have lived in Myers for about 16 years, where does this winter rank? 2017 was a really big year for us. You remember we had the drought from 2012 to 16. When 2017 came, we had about 30 feet of snow here at my house, Um, 10 different atmospheric river storms of about three feet apiece. But those seem to be more stretched out and there would be time in between with sun and all of that to shovel out this. I mean, we had 10 feet just in the last week and a half um, and, you know, it's still snowing. So it seemed just a lot more constant this year um, and harder to enjoy. because of that. If you were to walk outside your front door right now, what what would you see? Um. Well, I could get out my front door. I can't get out my back door anymore um, because of uh, having shoveled off the roof. So, you know, there's a lot more sun on the south side of your house. And on the north side of your house, what you get is piles and piles of snow that melts and freezes every day. And so you get ice dams. So most people who have ice dams are shoveling. We've had leaks in the house because the water pools up behind ice. So... Um, yeah, I can't go out the back door anymore, but I can go out the front door because my husband is a overachiever with the snowblower and shoveler. Um, you know, I can't see the house across the street the, because of the berm from my deck, um, and I can walk down the streets. It's basically one lane, maybe a little bit extra wide. I do take my dog on a walk, and uh, we all have to pop in a driveway so the, tr- the cars can go by. 
Um, and there's plenty of houses you just can't even see. Wow. I was out yesterday and there were just a lot of people shoveling, getting ready for the atmospheric river coming. Yeah, I mean, you highlight, you know, a reality is that there are hazards with obviously this amount of snowfall and you've been shoveling off your roof. Snow can be incredibly heavy and can create damage as well as be a risk just to safety. How are residents in your neighborhood faring? Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of people are hiring contract crews to shovel their roofs. Other people are doing it themselves. Uh, I saw at least 10 houses in the last two days with people on the roof. Um, but surprisingly well, I would say, the residents that are here, they've got their driveways all cleared out. They're busy out there every day doing the work and making sure that we can get in and out. So it's pretty impressive. I would say the county has been pretty impressive, too. We've had plows go by pretty much every day. Um, in the past, I think in January, we had one where it took two or three days for the plow to go by. Um, and that's not unusual in really big storms, but they've really kept up over this last 10 feet. And so, you know, cars can get around. Everything's everything's working pretty much. That's great to hear because communities in the San Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles, they're still reeling from the last series of storms. And there have been uh, accounts of many roads in those towns were blocked for days, snow leading to shortages of food and other essential supplies. But it seems like in El Dorado County, um, the response has been good so far. At least in the Tahoe Basin, I definitely have friends on the West Slope where they're not getting much plowing. But, you know, we have uh, tourist infrastructure here in, in Tahoe and um, getting people in and out of the basin is our lifeblood. So we have a very um, well-developed infrastructure for plowing and blowing snow. Um, so yeah, we're fortunate in that regard compared to other mountain communities. Given that you've been posting pictures and images like since, you know, the end of February, and, and as I said, they're, they're quite remarkable. You know, you keep shoveling your self out. Uh, I think there was one video where you were shoveling the snow off of your house, which appears to be at least five to six feet high. It's now March 8th, and there is an incoming system that you're preparing for. Um, are, are you kind of like with each series of, you know, storms that come? Are you like again, like you kind of think you're out of the woods and then and then you're not? It's all blurs together, to be frank. <laughs> it's like one long, un unending uh, trial of trying to get it all done. But uh, yeah, for sure, um, with this new storm coming in, the big concern is that it's going to be rain on snow. And so if you have a lot of snow on your roof, the rain can permeate that and then freeze in the, at night. It's still down in the teens every night. So that's really going to add to the weight of the roof. And so, yeah, people who are getting ready, I'd say are getting ready even more so because we're more worried about the rain coming than the snow because the rain will just really add weight within the snow matrix. So yeah, um, it's been a concern all along. We've been shoveling all along and now we're really worried. I hope you guys eat well, some nice warm and cozy food <laughs> when you get back inside. I'm just visualizing yeah. you outside shoveling for the last, you know, week and counting. Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. And standing on your roof, you get an amazing view, <laughs> I have to say. It's the little things, the, the little things that are really important. There are, you know, some, you know, when looking at the at the risk, though, like on March 2nd, you posted that there was actually an explosion at a property in your neighborhood. And according to South Lake Tahoe now, it took firefighters and neighbors, you know, 20 minutes to dig out the nearest fire hydrant. People who don't live in the basin or don't live at higher elevations might not be aware of of, of the risks that snowfall can pose, especially when it comes to, you know, an explosion. 
Well, we do have natural gas connections here. And so, yeah, the weight of the snow on the natural gas uh, main line and meter uh, can sometimes push it off. So, yeah, it's a huge concern. So we are also um, trying to uh, shovel out the nat natural gas meters. But, yeah, our, the city and county have an adopt a um, a fire hydrant program. Um, some of it is formal, some of it is informal. I know the people doing it in our neighborhood, so I can tell you that the one next to my house is all all um, shoveled out. They all have very tall little, um, you know, sticks on them so you can see where they are. Um, but yeah, the house in our neighborhood, that was a real tragedy. Um, and it's under investigation, obviously, but um, a gas explosion from the gas main is the most obvious explanation. So yeah, I think uh, our gas provider actually developed a whole bunch of little um, covers for our gas meters um, for the winter, but not everybody has them yet. Mm -hmm. So gonna definitely going to ask for one of those for next year. Absolutely. <laughs> As you've been chronicling, you know, what you've been going through on Twitter, I mean, there's moments like that, which are serious, but you also share moments of some levity. I mean, you posted a video of your son kayaking off the roof of your home <laughs> down a wall of snow. Um, I guess what have the responses been like to your posts on Twitter? Because you're really giving us a front row seat of, you know, because, you know, often we're not supposed to drive up there in these conditions, right? Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, so many people even just telling me they're worried about me and thinking about me. So, I mean, people's good size comes out. I think I'm not as worried about me as other people who are watching this on Twitter because I know we have a good, strong house. We're doing what we need to do. We've got plenty of food. If you're hunkered down and you're not taking chances, it's it's not like it was when we were evacuated for a wildfire, you know. Um, it feels a lot more safe and cozy unless something has happened to your house, which there's a few of them, but it's not like the whole community is in danger of burning down. So I guess my um, danger level is not very high um, compared to how people are responding on Twitter. But um, yeah, the video I posted of my son, we were on the roof and um, taking a break. And so he's a he's a raft guide and enjoys kayaking. So he stopped started on the dormer and went straight down all the way to the backyard. Um, and that's been super popular. Uh, in 2017, he skied off the roof. Um, there was enough snow back then too, but uh, he has a new passion for kayaking. There's still time. I don't know what it'll be next time. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> you know, when you talk about, you know, the way you gauge, you know, what what is dangerous, you have a really interesting perspective because before moving to Myers, you lived in Greenville. That's a town in Plumas County. And as we know, that town was devastated by the Dixie Fire in 2021, a place that you still have deep connections to. And then that same summer, you had to evacuate from the Caldor Fire across the Tahoe Basin in El Dorado counties and surrounding counties as well. You're now experiencing extreme weather on the other end with a snowstorm. How do you reflect on everything that you've really kind of navigated over just the last couple years? Yeah, that's a good question. I've lived in the Sierra, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Sierra Nevada for about 30 years now. Um, first in Plumas County and now in El Dorado County. And the last five years have been the hardest um, with the increase in high severity fire, huge um, areas burning, homes burning down a lot, um, and then extreme snow events. Um, it's getting harder, I would say. Uh, it takes more preparation. 
Um, but I still would not live anywhere else at this point. Um, to me, it's still totally worth it. Um, and I feel like there's at least about wildfire, there's a lot that we can do. As a forester, I know that forest management can really reduce the risk. So I have a lot of hope moving forward that we can um, change the situation and make it more livable and safe for communities. As far as snow, I don't think there's much I can do about that. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I live in Tahoe and from a climate change perspective, uh, things are getting hotter the lower down you are. So higher up you are is probably going to be cooler and have more water in the future. And, you know, you'd think that'd be great. But then you have winters like this and you realize, you know, nature could still clobber you by completely burying you in snow and crushing you. So <laughs> there's still um, concerns, um, you know, wherever you live about climate change and, and the extreme weather. Given that you've previously joined us on Insight to talk about forest health and how you instruct private landowners to do prescribed fires, controlled burns, what do you think, how do you think all of this snow in your area, what it means for the health of our forests and the outlook for the state's 2023 wildfire season? Well, from a forest health perspective, it's excellent, excellent news. Um, Droughts are really what lead to a lot of tree mortality, not related to fire, but related to drought and insects. And, um, you know, 2012 to 16, we had something like 150 million dead trees throughout the state. And then we had that big winter of 2017. And that brought down the tree mortality and bark beetle activity precipitously, like the one of the pine beetles populations just crashed and ponderosa pines stopped dying just instantly. So um, I am hopeful that that's what we'll see again with this really big winter. Um, And so I think it's good news for the health of individual trees. That doesn't um, do anything for the fact that there's still too many trees and there's a need for active um, thinning and fuels reduction to be done. So wildfire is always a concern. This much moisture at lower elevation definitely makes grass grow and uh, stimulate fuels that could lead to a bad wildfire season. At the higher elevations in the forests, a lot of them are already crowded out and don't have a lot of undergrowth. And so the concern um, is less from from a big snow load. And the snow will take a long time to melt. Usually we have a little snow on the ground here in April uh, for Easter. I have a hard time imagining we'll even see the ground by Easter this year. So we'll have snow and we'll have melting and moisture for much longer. So I I do hope that that will reduce the season at the highest elevations. I think we have good examples of that being the case in the past, you know, barring some huge heat wave in May. Before we let you go, Susie, I mean, just looking at all this snow, a lot of people want to go up. They want to enjoy it, not always at the right time. We've also seen videos of that as well. And as a reporter who's headed up to Summit, both ends, like I understand that as well, people being unprepared. What message do you have for people who may want to go up and and see all the snow, take advantage of it, uh, but it may not be the, the best thing at this time? I would just say be a weather geek. Read up. Look at when the breaks in the storm are going to happen and believe it and be prepared. So, I mean, it is epic skiing right now. So I wouldn't discourage people from coming in general, but you just have to choose the right time and come uh, pay attention to when to come 
you know, come during the week, not the weekend if you can. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's something people should see for themselves to believe. <laughs> so yeah, come on up, but come at the right times. Thank you so much, Susie. Taking a break from shoveling to join Thank us. You. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Susie Coger is a forestry advisor for the University of California's Cooperative Extension in South Lake Tahoe and a 16-year resident of Myers, which is located in the Tahoe Basin, sharing how she and her community is enduring this winter's powerful snowfall. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. School boards wield a lot of power, but often for voters, they are maybe the lesser-known race on ballots. However, in recent years, particularly during the pandemic, this elected position has been politicized across the country, which on the one hand means there's more awareness, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a deeper collective understanding of their influence on education, an influence that is also shaped by representation. A CAP Radio Sacramento Observer analysis looked into four districts within Sac County, Sac City, Elk Grove, Natomas, and San Juan Unified, to better understand if school boards reflect their student body. It's important because Sacramento schools are among the most diverse in the state, and their findings are far from uniform. Shristi Prabha is Cap Radio's Sacramento education reporter and joins us with their analysis as well as conversations with school board members about the demands of this position. Hey, Shristi. Good morning, Vicki. So you've been on Insight before talking about the importance of school boards in education as well as in equity. Given your depth of knowledge on this topic, what were you hoping to learn from doing a canvas, an analysis of representation across four Sacramento County school districts? Yes, I feel a little bit like a broken record because I love talking about school districts. And the more I go into it, the more I learn. So I think every election cycle, we see school board demographics change. And we know so little about our board trustees, their roles, their backgrounds and the history of our school boards. Even for me, that was something that I wasn't really, you know, well averse to. So you know, I realize Sacramento County has some of the most diverse districts in California. And Elk Grove, for example, is the most diverse in Northern California. So there's something to be said about what does it look like to represent these diverse communities. So I my research kind of went into looking at the school boards and whether or not they proportionally represent racial and ethnic diversity in the student population. 
And we know that there's a quick shift in these uh, these these proportionalities because as soon as you have an election cycle, there's so few board seats that those numbers can very quickly change. And just to give a little bit more insight, I did look at four specific districts. I looked at Sac City Unified. I looked at Elk Grove Unified, Natomas Unified, and San Juan Unified. Yeah. And yeah, those school board positions, you know, when elected, there's just, you know, a handful of them often from one district to the next. So given that many people may not know the importance of a school board member, why is this role so crucial? Yes, let's talk about it. I cannot emphasize it enough. (laughs) Your school boards dictate local education structures. And I've said this again and again and again, but I will repeat myself because I think it's so important to know what the role of your local school board is. So your local school board can... uh, assess personnel, create disciplinary structures, dictate curriculum, distribute funds from the digit uh, from the budget. And those are just a few of the tasks that they have control over. I want to talk about why representation matters. So in 2019, the Black Minds Project found that Black and Indigenous students had the highest suspension rates in Elk Grove and Sacramento City Unified, which is the highest in California. So that, you know, we're already seeing there's a disparity in educational equity. Another thing we've seen is literacy and math rates for black and brown students are at an average of 50 percent of students not meeting state standards. So clearly there is a gap. And then we see this research that's being done. And, and a lot of people might know, you know, we, we talk about teachers reflecting the students in their classroom. But what about the administration? What is the outcome of that? So I did a little bit more of a deeper dive. And in 2020, we saw researchers who had been thinking about ethnic disparities and punishment outcomes. And this was a national kind of, you know, research. It found that diversity in positions of authority in school settings fosters a more equitable approach to the administration of student punishment. So while this is focused on like administration and teachers, I think you can really see the parallels on the school board because school boards are the ones dictating disciplinary structures, which is something I mentioned earlier. When looking at your analysis, I was actually pretty surprised that representation can really vary from one school district to the next. What surprised you most when you actually took in these results? Let's get into it a little bit. So each district had a very different marginalized community that wasn't being represented. On average, we saw overrepresentation of white communities in every district or proportional. So they are the most, you know, reflected on their school boards. And then we see an underrepresentation of Asian Americans and indigenous communities. And we see some overrepresentation and some underrepresentation of Hispanic and Latin and black communities. So in Sacramento City Unified, for example, you see that the largest student demographic is Hispanic and Latin, but that entire group is absent from the school board, whereas, you know, 54 percent of the board seats are made up by wide trustees, even though they only take up 16 percent of the student population. And if you go into my story, you'll see that I do an analysis of each of these districts Um And overall, it just varies quite a bit. So we have to be sure to reflect these diversities as much as we possibly can. You know, Shristi, when talking to educators or academics, you know, we're talking about the topic of equity. Is the end goal for school boards and their, you know, handful of elected school board members to mirror the student body 
in diversity. And I ask that because, you know, that kind of sounds too simple. And diversity goes beyond race and ethnicity. So is that enough to create an equitable environment for students? You're right. It's not enough. And I do want to capitalize a little bit on what I said earlier. Overrepresentation of minority groups can actually be a positive in historically white spaces, right? So we you know, while we're saying, oh, yeah, we want representation, maybe that representation looks like an over-representation of minority groups because that will actually create what I saw through my research. It creates more inclusive priorities and agendas on the school board. And then the other thing is, you know, it's not just about having a representative school board. It's are people well-versed in the education space. So I spoke to California School Board Association's Troy Flint, who confirms that you know, board demographics don't necessarily track the populations they serve, um, but there is an importance to that being being a part of the the system. Yes. If you have somebody who has some sort of identification or experience that reflects what students are going through, that's a great piece. But you also want to see, do they have an understanding of the school board role? Do they have a specific understanding of the opportunities and challenges facing the school district? Do they understand a little bit about ed code? And diversity can help, but it's not the solution. Listeners can obviously go in depth in your article. We have it linked on our Insight page. It's also on capradio.org to look at each individual school district that you canvassed. But overall, even for families outside of the four districts you looked into, what was the big takeaway for you as an education journalist? Yeah, I think for something that Troy Flint was kind of speaking about, you know, diversity isn't everything, but diversity currently does not reflect its populations. And that tracks within California, where, you know, 40 percent of the population is Hispanic, but only 20 percent of them holds school board seats in the state. So, you know, you want to see this overrepresentation, which is kind of what I mentioned earlier, and that allows for uh, inclusive ideologies where you're seeing black and brown students not meeting math and literacy rates. You're seeing disproportional disciplining of of black and brown students. We need representation on school boards, but the structure of school boards is so prohibitive. And that was something that I really took away from writing this this story was there's few seats and what is required from the position and the sacrifices that are that need to be made to uplift minority voices is a lot. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Cap Radio Sacramento education reporter Shristi Prabha, who looked into four school districts within Sac County, Sac City Unified, Elk Grove Unified, Natomas Unified, and San Juan Unified, and whether their school boards reflect the diversity of the student body. Shristi, you also spoke with a number of really relatively new school board members who are breaking the mold in representation. They all come from different backgrounds. They have different lived experiences. But are there some common themes that drew them to run and ultimately to get elected? Yeah, that's quite perceptive, Vicky. I did speak to trustees of color and I spoke to them about the adversity they had to overcome to take on these positions. Many of them had benefited from educational equity themselves or had faced challenges in those spaces. One person that comes to mind is Paula Viasquez of San Juan Unified. Um, she's a board member. She's a Hispanic woman. And she stare, she shares her story with me about, you know, working at Roundtable while going to Miraloma High School to support her single mother and their family. So for her, education was a way out of cyclical poverty. She was also one of the first to graduate from college, and she became it. She became a policy advisor and found that education was imperative to her future success. 
But when she decided to run, actually, the first time she ran, she lost her election. So she faced quite a few challenges. And here's a little bit of what she has to say. There was a time last year where I was campaigning, working, and being on school board. And it's a lot to to juggle with not a lot of tangible financial return. And it's a barrier to who decides to run and who ends up being in charge and the decisions that are being made. Even just the idea of being able to run a campaign on resources that you're pulling together either individually or from your network, like that's a privilege. Yeah, campaigns are expensive, right? But what arguably surprised me the most is that these are elected positions. They are unpaid, yet require a great deal of time if you're going to do it right with integrity. How does this impact diversity on the school board? I mean, diversity is directly impacted by this. And who can afford the time and who has the resources to run? It takes over 20 hours a week, some of the school members said, to do this job, which is on top of their full-time job. You have to be well-versed, again, in education, and that is not an easy task. You have to do your research. You have to show up to board meetings. So I spoke to Chinua Rhodes, who is the president of the Sac City Unified School Board. He's also a black man who took a year off work to be an effective school board trustee. But in the process, you know, he kind of talks about sacrificing his own well-being. I felt that I can be a better representative if this was what I was going to do, or at least give me the on-ramp to uh, learn in that year to kind of understand the duties and what without having the stressors. And how I was able to do that, we cut back on everything. And it was actually really difficult to the point of after that, when about a month before the year was up, it was like, hey, we don't have any money. It was just an extreme sacrifice (laughs) so that I could try my best to service the community that I grew up in. Well, admirable. That's a sacrifice that isn't realistic or sustainable, you know, especially when you're looking at diversity and reflecting the student body that that you serve and care about. So for those who become a school board member and essentially make both that financial and personal sacrifice, as we just heard, I learned a term from your reporting that one professor you spoke with used to describe this price that they ultimately pay. Can you explain the person of color tax in terms of education? Definitely. So I mean, Chinua Rhodes was just one of many trustees of color that I spoke to, and every single one had a very similar story. So you're hearing these stories of, of, of you know, just overcoming so much to amplify voices in their community. And when I was speaking to UCLA's education professor, Tyrone Howard, he talked to me about what is required in leadership, leadership positions in the education system for people of color. And I think he can describe this uh, phenomenon best. There's something that I call the POC tax. I think as a person of color, we're oftentimes expected to do more than what our white counterparts do. We're expected to be the voice of, of, of reason. We're expected to be the voice around diversity. And that's a lot to carry because it shouldn't be solely the responsibility of the person of color to always raise the concerns around inclusion, around equity, around justice. But frequently, that's what happens. But there's also this financial piece for many folks of color who may know the issues. They don't have several thousand dollars just sitting around to say, I'm going to run for school board. In some cases, more than several thousand. It's tens of thousands of dollars that you need. I mean, I'm learning so much. But even with your in-depth knowledge about education in Sacramento schools, what were some of your biggest kind of like aha moments when talking to school board members? 
Yeah, it was it was extremely important for me to hear about the nature of the work because I think a lot of times we don't spend the time to get to know the people that are hearing and the concerns of the community and to hear the the toll it takes on them because for them to be able to service minority voices they need to themselves you know take care of their own well-being and i don't think that anyone when anyone has or has been asking them how are you so for me to hear that i mean some of the the narratives i heard were actually quite shocking and it they will come out in some of my future stories but i heard stories of unkindness of racism and things that should not play a role in education policy Zima Creason is the San Juan Unified Black Board board president. Um, I mean, she's the San Juan Unified Board president, and she's also a black woman. Sorry. And she kind of talks about all of the challenges she's had to face as a black woman in this space. I knew the job wouldn't be easy. We don't all have to agree on everything. That's just not how society works, nor should it. We all should be free thinkers, but it got really personal and really nasty. So that's really what made me take pause to be like, do I want to do this? And also, you know, there were uh, folks showing up at a public officials' houses. I mean, I have a kid at home. Yeah, there's also, I mean, that also brings up an important topic about not only having them take take these spaces and kind of, you know, whatever, break the mold, but also a retention rate, having them run again and again. And um, you actually talked to some school board members who were like, you know what, I'm out after, you know, one or two election cycles. That's totally true. I did. I talked to a few different people who ran for re-election and did it just solely because they felt like they were the only ones that could potentially be a good voice for their community or they were seeing you know, in this case, specifically a proud boy running in their district and felt that, you know, they needed to combat that voice to some degree. So, yeah, it's taxing. It's a taxing job. And there's little to no, like, reward, actually, because the job of a school board member is just to show up and listen to the concerns of the community, which is great. But it also is a very hard job. Finally, Shristi, California, the rest of the country, we're growing more diverse. It's more common to be mixed races, just well as finding safe spaces to be open about sexual and gender identities. How do you see this influencing upcoming school board generations? Yeah, intersectional intersectional identities can prove and provide a hetero, heterogeneous lens to the education system. I spoke to a few different people that had, you know, intersectional identities like Noel Mora in Natomas and Michael Vargas in Elk Grove, who are some of the few LGBTQ members on board and also Mexican-American and mixed race. They both independently discuss this as important in what they want to provide for their districts. You clearly begin to see the diversification of priorities with these, you know, multiple identities in the space. So um, one thing Troy Flint from the school board California School Board Association said was that, you know, ultimately we're seeing more, you know, more reflective school boards. But but from where we've had to start, it'll take a generation before we get there. Shristi, thank you so much. Thanks, Vicky. Shristi Prabha is CAP Radio's Sacramento education reporter who looked into four school districts within Sac County, Sac City Unified, Elk Grove Unified, Natomas Unified, and San Juan Unified, and whether their school boards reflect the diversity of the student body. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If your ears are eager for live music, Insight's Concert Connect has you covered, thanks with, to the help from Cap Radio's hosts, Nick Bruner and Andrew Garcia, because Sacramento is home to great music venues, and even if you want to spend a day away, there are concerts that are not that far from the state capitol. With so many concert calendars to sort through, it can be overwhelming to stay on track with the artists to check out live. Luckily, Andrew and Nick have have sacrificed their eardrums, tinnitus, I guess, to find the best concerts to see within the next two weeks. Thanks for joining us, Nick and Andrew. Uh, I'm so overwhelmed, Vicki. <laughs> oh, the exhaustion that it takes to sort through fun things. Oh, you're, you're very kind. It's a tough, tough, tough job. So, Nick, I want to start with you. The first artist that you want to highlight is Titus Andronicus, who will be performing at Harlow's Tuesday, March 14th. Why this pick? Uh, they are Brainy Barroom Rock. You could listen to a band like this and you could think, oh boy, these are just a bunch of thugs just having a good time. And you know what? They are. But like we're talking about a band that made a concept record about a Civil War battleship back in 2010. That's back when the singer and guitarist Patrick Stickles was just 25. When I was 25, I just maybe started thinking about learning how to dress. So these guys are, they've got a lot going on upstairs and they have just so much fun like big, loud, bold sounds, and they're New Jersey-based. There's a Springsteen vibe all over this record. That's not a mistake either. Um, in fact, they intended for that to happen. Uh, Stickles actually said it may strike some as ironic. We had to go to Canada to record our equivalent to "Born in the USA." So uh, this track comes off of Titus Andronicus's newest album, "The Will to Live." Don't be a beer with that song. I was just about to say, <laughs> you're already smashing pints together and your arms thrown around a total stranger as you're screaming at the top of your lungs, right? Yeah. Like, that is the, that, I love that song and that's the vibe you get on just about every Titus Andronicus record and I cannot wait to see Great that. Great song to get pumped up. It, their name though, it has it, it's a play on Shakespeare, right? Not even a play, it's a direct reference to wow. Shakespeare's play, Titus Andronicus. Uh, sidebar, if anybody uh, out there has not seen Julie Taymor's uh, Titus starring Sir Anthony Hopkins, 
Uh, it's a glorious mess, and I love it to pieces. Uh, it has nothing to do with the sound of this, but uh, go check that out, too. Went off on a little important tangent. Thanks, Nick. All right. <laughs> so. Oh, one of my very few. <laughs> All right, Andrea, I want to get to you next, because the next concert actually takes us up to the foothills, Nevada mm-hmm. City in Nevada County. That's taking place Wednesday, March 15th. And so tell us about Jonathan Rickman. Jonathan Richman uh, uh, is is known a lot, I think, by most folks by his early work in the 70s, sort of uh, often called the godfather of punk. Uh, so he you know, helped create that entire genre and then uh, decided to, to throw it all in the trash and then just keep uh, changing up expectations and uh, uh, sort of evolving, eschewing the, uh, the uh, normal conventions. And so now he's dropped electric guitars. He's got his acoustic guitar. He doesn't have a band anymore. It's really just like percussion behind him. Uh, but he has never stopped being sort of weird and esoteric. And there's just a, a great love for music in all its shapes and forms that you can hear in everything that he does. Uh, I've been calling him your favorite musician's favorite musician because he's just that influential. Yeah, there was another quote um, in the notes that I was reading, punk before punk, right? And yeah. then, and also proto-punk. What is proto-punk? Punk before punk. Punk oh, before oh, punk. Okay, yeah, got just it. Just in, right. in a more fancy hipster way of saying it. <laughs> I need to update my lingo. Okay, well, let's take a listen to the song we're about to hear, In a Dancing Mood by Jonathan Richman. Two, three, four... Celebrate this panorama mm-hmm. And when they get full of soul When they get full of soul We got to celebrate this drama Celebrate this drama And, and I'm in a dancing mood I'm in a dancing mood And I feel sort of great I feel sort of A-OK when I'm in, when I'm in, when I'm in a dancing mood. I feel sort of all right. I feel sort of out of sight when I'm If you could see us right now, I feel like we're all the wavy, inflatable, like, you know, (laughs) outside of, you know, whatever, a car dealership or something. We're in a dancing mood. I got to be honest, Andrew. I'm surprised. I was hearing you're talking to me about punk, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought about this, about this, about Jonathan Richmond in a dancing mood sounding the way that it sounds. And that's kind of sort of the most punk rock thing that you can do, right? It's just like you expect this and then I'm going to do this completely different thing. And so I think that's the hallmark of a lot of his later career and uh, which will be really fun to uh, listen to. All right. So, Andrew, the next band you have for us is Blues Lawyer. I like that name. Where'd it come from? I've heard a couple different things, uh, potentially, you know, the the sort of... Uh, fancy pants lawyers who are very busy but also have a lot of expendable income and, you know, buy very expensive guitars and they end up hanging up next to the mantel place and things like that. I originally thought that maybe it was like someone who was a lawyer of blues musicians and helps to... Uh, <laughs> to Lead to, Belly's attorney. Yeah, Lead Belly's attorney, you know, uh, help uh, uh, aggrieved blues musicians and things like that. Uh, but uh, it's all just... 
in my head. Litigate a song. Uh, you know, so obviously <laughs> the name is not really taking itself too seriously. Does that kind of carry over to the type of music that, that they play? I think so. Uh, there's They sort of hit a really good balance between irony and earnestness. Uh, there's sort of like an effortless to their delivery of a very cool nonchalance, but not too cool. Uh, they, it's balanced with some really tunesome and engaging melodies. Uh, and it's all wrapped up in a lot of really bright, enthu- enthusiastic jangle rock. All right. Well, let's take a listen to Blues Lawyer, Nowhere to Go. Got a good air guitar from Andrew Garcia right there. I love a good guitar <laughs> solo. It's so good. That's a good road trip song. Good road trip song. Yeah, I can definitely see some driving. And they, and the Blues Lawyer blues lawyer themselves will be driving in from Oakland. So they're an Oakland-based band, not too far. But there will also be some uh, local Sacramento talent on Showcase, uh, which should be pretty fun. Fitting is a garagey indie rock band that will be opening, as well as Hella Dusty, uh, who's sort of a synthy crooner, rye sort of guy. Awesome. So Fitting, Hella Dusty, Blues Lawyer, Golden Bear, March 19th. Mm-hmm. We glossed over something. that We glossed over a little vocab term that Andrew tossed out there, too. I just want to point out, tunesome isn't a phrase that I have, <laughs> I have, I've heard recently. That's, 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 that's delightful. Tunesome. I love that. It's going to the back of my mind Good word, right fun now. to say. All right. Last but not least, Nick, the next musician has an interesting name. Yeah. Tanukachan. Tanukachan. Yes. yes. Okay, great. And that is the band from Hannah Van Loon from San Francisco Bay. Yes. Why the choice? Um, I Well, it's good to have uh, musically-minded friends, Vicki. Um, we have an analog calendar uh, about uh, 10 feet away from your microphone. I've encouraged people at Cap Radio to be like, hey, if you have a concert coming up, come write it up. And uh, Jasmine Vu from our membership department was rolling by and said, hey, I just wanted to write up uh, this uh, Tanukachan concert. And I said, oh, uh, you mean this? And I held up the CD. And they said, oh, my gosh, it's here. And I was like, yeah, I was 
getting ready to audition it. Any good? And they said, absolutely, you must listen to this. And I did, and they are right. And Tanuki Chan is fantastic. Um, and for all the reasons you just said, uh, and more, there's like, they're like an uh, electronic blanket of melodic fuzz. There's some 90s influence in there. If you like Mazzy Star or Beach House or Ivy or even a little bit of Portishead in there, I think you're going to get a lot out of uh, Tanuki Chan's new record. All right. Well, let's listen to Been Here Before. Oh, that is such a 90s uh, CD cover. Gizmo, and that's their sophomore album. Yes, yes, it is. This is a second record uh, from Tanuki Chan. This is a dog howling behind a chain link fence and some very, like, it looks like a blind uh, melon album cover for anybody who uh, wants to go back that far. I love it. And they'll be at the Starlet Room Thursday, March 23rd. That is very correct. Once again, never short of great shows to see. You guys must just be exhausted, you know? In the best way possible, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, an exciting work to do. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, the Toonsome segment that we just did. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that is CAF Radio host Nick Bruner and Andrew Garcia sharing. They're quickly approaching concert selections for Insights Concert Connect. You can learn more on CAF Radio's Instagram account and, of course, on Hey Listen, which airs Saturdays from 3 to 5 and 8 to 10 p.m. Hooray! That is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to join the conversation, email us at insightatcapradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Aram Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones, and our engineer is Chris Feltz. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here on Monday because we have an NPR special tomorrow ahead of the Oscars, some pop culture. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.